Welcome to the Essay for FAs Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors. I'm your host, Gil Weinrich, and today I'm delighted to have on our show a special guest, Larry Siegel. Larry is well known by the Financial Cognoscenti. He is Director of Research at the CFA Institute Research Foundation and spent much of his career as Director of Research for the Investment Division of the Ford Foundation. More recently, he is the author of a book called Fewer, Richer, Greener, a relentlessly optimistic take on the future. In our talk, we're going to focus on the richer part of this vision. I'm really excited to have Larry Siegel on our show. One reason for that, I candidly admit, is that while I am decidedly a long-term optimist, I am a medium-term pessimist. And that was a theme of my podcast last week, in which I argued that interventionist monetary policy and expansionary fiscal policy are sources of the more than decade-long market advance and will eventually upend it. I wanted listeners to be able to hear from a serious financial analyst with a different point of view than mine. Larry, welcome to our show. Thank you. And I don't really disagree with you. I think that the last decade of monetary expansion is problematic. Uh, We go through these massive bull markets every 20 or 30 years, and then there's a corrective period, and it can be severe or it can be not severe, and it really depends on what's happening in the real economy. It depends on how much growth we get and whether our governments can pay their bills. I appreciate that. In fact, I wanted to actually touch on that point by quoting your book, which, by the way, is elegantly written. Thank you. Sure. So so here's a quote. This is actually a footnote of yours. I quote, the financial historian and investment manager Peter Bernstein in a private communication expressed the idea that booms followed by the inevitable crashes are the price of progress. The Internet boom of the late 1990s was followed by a crash, but we got the Internet. The housing boom of the next decade was followed by an even bigger crash, but we got the houses, Bernstein argued. The same can be said of innovation-related booms and their related busts throughout history. My question for you, Larry, what innovation are we getting now, and what price do you expect we will pay for it? The innovations that we're getting now are a little more subtle than the internet or a big pile of houses. They are advances in biotechnology, which are really remarkable. We've just at least here in the United States, we appear to be at the end of a pandemic of COVID, which is now controllable through a vaccine that works on a principle that didn't exist a very short time ago, which is messenger RNA. Now that we have that technology, the next virus will be much easier to develop a vaccine for because all you need to do is know the sequence of the virus's genome, and you can make the vaccine. It's not experimenting with different things to see what works. We know it's going to work. Another change that's taking place is in the information technology field, and it is affecting financial services. It's sort of referred to as blockchain, but the, the entire financial system is going to be upended in the next five to 10 years by what we call shared space, which is that in a a financial transaction, I see what you see, and a stock, a contract, a piece of merchandise traveling through the supply chain will be represented by something called the digital token, which will have all the information that's ever been gathered about that 
piece of merchandise, including who paid how much for what part of the supply chain. And this will make global trade much more efficient. It'll make the price level, the real price level go down. Things will get cheaper. I'm not saying we won't have inflation, but the amount of effort it will take to produce a particular good or service will go down. So we will have uh, economic growth that we weren't anticipating. Lots of little things like this. But what's the price we're going to pay? Uh, well, we know what the return is going to be on a 10-year TIPS bond. It's about negative one or negative a half. That's a terrible rate of return yep. for getting your own money back. <laughs> and this also affects the return on stocks, which are now priced relative to these extremely disappointing bonds. They're, the stocks are expensive, so the future returns will be lower than the past. Your medium-term outlook is also not as optimistic as your book. But medium outlook for markets. For the real economy, I think we're in a good spot. Okay, well, you'll address that maybe through this very next quote. We now know how not to be poor, how to discover, innovate, save, and invest. This is knowledge that mankind did not have for most of its existence. Now that we have it, we can use it to continue the process of democratizing wealth until no one, pathological cases aside, is in serious want. What is stopping us? That's a quote. And my question for you, Larry, is what is stopping us? Many would argue that the middle class is in free fall. The global middle class is not in free fall. If you're in Indonesia, now past the $12,000 a year income threshold for the first time, and 50 years ago, it would have been $1,200 a year in today's money. They are doing spectacularly relative to their own history and their own expectations. If you're in Botswana, if you're in Peru, if you are in parts of Eastern Europe and, and the Middle East and North Africa, the global middle class is booming. If you're in the United States, we're facing competition from these other places and these other people for the first time in our long history. So we've been kind of in a bubble of economic prosperity that started in the 1700s and has proceeded almost without interruption. We had one Great Depression and a series of minor depressions in our 250-year history, and we're accustomed to, as Americans, thinking that this is going to go on forever without us trying, without without being competitive with the rest of the world. And what's happening is that we're becoming more specialized. We're 5% we're of the world population headed to four. And we have to specialize in what we're best at, which is technology, healthcare, financial services, education. We also have a very large degree, amount of employment in government. I don't really want us to specialize in government <laughs> more than we have. The resources for it come out of all the others. And and a few other things, a high, this sort of fits into technology, but high-end manufacturing. But when you want a part for a Rolls-Royce engine, for a, a Boeing 787, uh, it probably comes from a U.S. company, even if it's manufactured through a supply chain that goes to various parts of the world. So we get paid for our intelligence, our creativity, look at Hollywood, our intellectual property portfolio is the, by far the biggest in the world. The problem is not everybody is that smart. And so that's a challenge we have to rise to and figure out. Another critical problem we need to figure out, and again, I will quote you, because you put the problem quite well, here we go. The good news from figure 9.4 then is that you might live a long time, 
an average of 20 years after retirement if you're an American female retiring now with a wide distribution around the average. The bad news is you're going to have to pay for it. The wide distribution is the catch. If your expected remaining life at age 65 is 20 more years, it could be 30 or even 40. This is a very difficult risk to hedge or insure against. Can you share your thoughts on retirement income adequacy? And please also mention your interesting recommendation of deferred annuities as part of the solution. Sure. The risk of outliving your money is very, very serious. If you are 45 and you're out of a job, you get another job. If you're 85 and you've run out of money because you budgeted to live to your life expectancy, but you live another 10 or 20 years, you can't get another job. Who's, who's going to want you and you're not going to be able to do it. So you have to prepare for this well in advance. And there are two ways to prepare for it. One is very expensive and the other is not. The way that's very expensive is to save for your maximum possible lifespan, which is in the range of 107 if you're a man to 110 if you're a woman. Nobody has that much money. I mean, maybe David Rockefeller does, but I'm not David Rockefeller. But what you would have to do is to spread the income from 30 or 40 years of work over 80 years of life, you'd have to save half your money unless investment returns were really spectacular. And as I've suggested, they're not going to be for a while. The other way is to pool this longevity risk with other people. Uh, there's only one legal way to do it, uh, which is to go through the intermediary of an insurance company. Insurance companies offer life annuities where they pay you until you die and then they stop. The price of this would be very high if the benefit started at, say, 65. But if the benefit starts at 85, it's going to be much cheaper for three reasons. One is they have 20 more years to invest the money before they begin the payout. The second is a lot of people won't live that long and they'll never get anything. And the third is that if you do begin to get the payout, many people don't live a long time after that. So you're really trading your money for the possibility of a payout over a very long life. My, my grandfather lived to 103, and that was a really long time because he was born in 1887, when life expectancy was something like 50. And he wasn't a poor man, but in his 90, late 90s, he ran out of money and had to ask his kids for money, and they were in their 70s, and it's a position you don't want to be in. So the, the problem with annuities is that they're not very transparent, uh, you, you need a financial analyst with a specialization in insurance products to understand them and get a good deal and figure out which insurance companies are are secure, which have hedged, you know, hedged their various risks properly. And not just now, but 40 years from now, but that's really the only way to do it at this time. I'm hoping that a better, more transparent and more liquid market in annuities emerges as people my age get to need them. We'll see what happens. That's very worthy of consideration. Moving on to the optimism that is the theme of your book, I'm going to challenge that a bit. The U.S. national debt, according to the U.S. Treasury Department, is $28 trillion. Truth in accounting puts the figure closer to $123 trillion. And let's not forget there's a lot of corporate debt and household debt as well. Are you a tad less optimistic today about our society becoming richer? Just a tad less. Obviously, if, if we've consumed already some of the resources we're going to produce in the future, then that cuts into the wealth. 
Uh, I don't agree with the truth in accounting. I believe that if you count every dollar that uh, the government, let's ignore private and corporate debt for the moment, every dollar that the government intends to spend in the rest of the existence of the United States, you get a number that boggles the mind. However, that's the liability side, and it's subject to future negotiation. Social Security benefits will probably be cut in real terms. They've already increased the retirement age from 65 to 67. It'll go higher, although because of the physical difficulty of some jobs, that the option for early retirement with a reduced benefit will remain. I've talked to people at Treasury, and they said, you know, you can't count on if you're 30 years old, you can't count on retiring with full Social Security benefits at 67. We don't have the money. So truth in accounting debt is as if I counted all my expenses for the rest of my life, groceries, property taxes, whatever I like to buy, and didn't offset against them the income that I expect to make. I can add up my liabilities and figure out that I'm very poor indeed, but I'm not because I have an asset side and it's hard to see the asset side because it's all human capital. It's all in my head. It's whatever I can sell between now and when I croak. So the idea of uh, adding up all the liabilities is sound as long as you recognize that you're just working on one side of the balance sheet and not thinking about what kind of growth is going to be necessary to pay for slow growth caused by the aging of the population. When the baby boomers all die off, well, you don't have to die off. When when we've stopped working, the workforce, not the population, but the workforce will be young again, and we'll get some growth from that. When we've all died off, then we won't have the liability overhang. And by 2050, my age cohort, I'm 66, uh, will be so small that it won't count economically, and we'll have a very productive older middle-aged population. Intriguing. Another item that you don't address in your book, but I must ask you because you are an expert in such things. I argued in my podcast last week that discounted cash flows and other tools of fundamental analysis are compromised when the so-called risk-free rate of money has been openly distorted for so long. Is there something to this in your opinion, or are you comfortable using traditional forms of financial analysis when analyzing stocks? I don't think that there's anything wrong with the basic framework of using a riskless rate plus a risk premium. A stock has a required risk premium that's considerable and that has to be added to the yield on the bond. Let's say the equity risk premium is four uh, and you're adding it to a negative half riskless rate. You can discount the stock's cash flows at three and a half percent and you still get a number that means something. It's whatever you can get for the stock. And, and the market is pricing those stocks at about 30 times earnings. It's higher than I'm used to. It's higher than I'm comfortable paying, but it's not an infinite price. And you'll get a, a rate of return that's lower than the historical one. Interesting. But not negative. But not negative. Okay. So, um, well, I mean, for some stocks, it'll be negative. A, a stock can go to zero, but for the whole market, it, if it is negative, it won't be negative for for decades. It may not be negative for more than just a short time because when it is negative, decline usually happens all at once. Okay. Then then stocks are cheap again and you have a positive expected return. 
Right. You suggested mitigating retirement risk with deferred annuities. How do you suggest investors mitigate the risk of loss in the current market, in the stock market? I think that there are two options. Settle for negative or near zero real yields on conservative assets. In other words, you save money and then you get to spend the money, but but you haven't made anything. Or take the risk of equities and uh, live with the possibility that you're going to lose money for a while. Or I'm not saying the market will start going down right now, but 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 average returns are going to have to be lower at these levels. There's no magic formula that gets you a, a return that you're used to at these prices. It's going to be lower. You just save more. Okay. So somehow I succeeded in dragging you into the muck of my own negativity. I apologize for that. So my final question is please to, to regale listeners with some your most hopeful vision of the future. As I said in a recent talk, in the last 50 years, Eastern China has become as rich as Italy. When I was a kid, my parents would tell me, finish what's on your plate. Children are starving in China. 50 years before that, my father's parents, if he had had both parents, would told him, finish what's on your plate. Children are starving in Belgium. Belgium is now as rich as we are. China has experienced the greatest wealth creation in the history of the world. And that machine isn't broken. It's, it's just capitalism. It's investing in the future, sacrificing the present to invest in the future. It's capital allocation picking the best projects and discarding the worst ones, cut your losses, ride the winners, and use competitive markets to determine who those winners are. And China has a slightly different formula, which is the government helps you pick the winners, but it's not that different. The, The government picks the winners based on what's making money. But what China really has is a one party dictatorship presiding over a very capitalistic system. Indonesia will become China, Peru will become Greece, Ethiopia will become Peru. Rich world will develop less quickly because we are already rich. It's just hard to grow something at the technological frontier because you're showing other people how to do it and then they go do it. And we have some social problems in the first world that that we're going to have to deal with in in creative ways. you, You can't just hand people money. But we, in the past, we've always created more jobs than we've destroyed through technological and economic progress. But we can continue to do it as long as there's an incentive to keep your skill level high and to learn what's relevant in the economy of the future that you're going to be living in. So the place I would start is by reforming the educational system so that people have school choice. Our government schooling isn't doing it don't fear the future embrace it that is the relentless optimism of fewer richer greener you can learn more about the book at www.larrysiegel.org larry glad to have you on our show thanks uh, could i uh, clarify one thing please uh, they don't know how to spell my name but they do know how to spell fewer richer greener.com and so i put in a very skeletal website that if you click on fewerrichergreener.com, it'll take you to the book. <laughs> That's an excellent clarification. But for those who want to know, Siegel is S-I-E-G-E-L. Thanks for tuning in. This is Gil Weinrich for Seeking Alpha. Mm-hmm.